Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Steve Dunn about his book, Securing the Narrow Sea, the Dover Patrol, 1914-1918. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, well, uh, I'm um, not in the first flush of youth. Um, I've had one career before being an author, um, but I'm now a full-time author. I write naval history. Um, uh, the book we're talking about today um, is the uh, uh, fifth book um, that I've written on, on First World War naval history. Uh, and thus far, I've not run out of subjects. <laughs> what was it that drew you to First World War naval history as a subject? Well, I think it's a fascinating area because most of the concentration of the First World War is on the terrible slaughter on the Western Front. Um, but actually, the war was really won at sea. It was command of the sea that uh, allowed Britain to reduce Germany's morale and their ability to survive in terms of food and, and, and materiel. Uh, to the point where their army really just didn't want to go on. And I think this point is often overlooked by, by historians because of the, the great slaughter on, on, the, on the Western Front, which overwhelms everybody's senses and emotions. Um, so I, I try to tell that story, and I, I try to tell it in a number of different ways. Um, but I also believe that the First World War at sea is really interesting because it's where the 18th century meets the 21st century. Um, you, know, you had recognizably Nelsonian tactics, and you had recognizably 21st century weapons. Um, and, and, and those two coming together um, make a, fa a fascinating um, strategic and tactical uh, background against which to write stories. One of the other things that I always find interesting about the conception or misconception about the First World War at sea is the focus on the battle fleets. And this, I think, goes back to what you're talking about, sort of the, the Nelsonian concept. And yet, as uh, what comes across in your book is that is just one level of the story. And in fact, the as you uh, describe in your book, the history of the First World War at sea is, is a much more complicated much more uh, involved and much more dramatic uh, tale than you would get by simply focusing upon the high seas fleet and the grand fleet sort of facing off but never truly engaging. Uh, that's correct. And, and pre-war, the British public and the Royal Navy expected that their battle fleet would sweep the German battle fleet from the sea, uh, and that would be the end of that. Um, the war would be over, the Navy would win it. Uh, but in fact, the German battle fleet never really tried to seek battle. Um, uh, it, it tried a, a strategy of reducing the strength of, of the Royal Navy's battle fleet. Um, there was only one major encounter, which is everybody knows is Jutland, and, and Jutland has been written about to death. Um, you know, I think uh, it was a score draw. I think Jutland, but, but the battle was really the battle at sea was really won by fishing trawlers, by destroyers, by sloops, um, by uh, anti-submarine vessels of one sort or another, um, which is and indeed by, um, as I uh, write about in one of my previous books, blockade, um, by armed merchant liners, uh, armed passenger liners. Um, the, 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 the battle was won by obtaining command of the sea using a whole range of ships and tactics that were unheard of. 
the, the, the Royal Navy before the war dismissed the submarine. Uh, it didn't think the submarine was a feasible weapon. And it also thought that the submarine was, was a, an underhand weapon. It was not the weapon of a gentleman. Um, uh, there were proofs so wrong there in, in terms of the, the submarine's success at the hands of the Germans or the U-boats. And, and mines were, were not understood. The British only had about 2,000 mines at the start of the war, and none of them worked. Um, and yet mines became a very important weapon all through the North Sea and the Dover Channel. Uh, and, and ships came into existence, ships like monitors, um, which uh, are described in, in the, Dover, the book about the Dover Patrol. Um, the monitor was a throwback to a sort of um, mortar-carrying uh, brig of the 18th century, um, uh, and yet played a very important role in, in the activities of the Dover Patrol, uh, protecting the, the channel and supporting uh, the French and Belgian armies on their left front, a left flank. You've been already referring to the Dover Patrol. I was wondering if we could, uh, if, if you could explain for us what the Dover Patrol was and uh, where it was and what was its uh, importance to the war effort at the start of the war. I'll, I'll certainly try. Um, the Dover Patrol didn't exist at the start of the war. Uh, it was called into existence in October 1914. Uh, at its core were um, 12 tribal-class destroyers. Um, they were the, the, the constant, uh, but it was also um, made up of an assortment of vessels that ranged from the modern to the frankly antique um, we've talked about monitors and destroyers, but there were also ancient battleships, there were antique cruisers, uh, there were um, ships built for other navies which had been pressed into service. Um, and, and they had to invent their tactical doctrine as they went along, because the, the, the original job they were given um, was as one end of the blockade of Germany. They were meant to intercept um, vessels trying to carry contraband goods to Germany. Uh, and help starve it into submission. But, but that role quickly grew to, to include protection of the British and then later American soldiers going across the Channel. Um, it also encompassed shore bombardment in support of the left wing of the French and Belgian armies, mine sweeping and mine laying, convoy escort through the Channel, uh, and the prevention of U-boats getting out from their Flemish bases once Germany had conquered Belgium. They, they set up uh, significant U-boat bases at places like Zeebrugge and Ostend, um, and, and gaining access to the Atlantic Ocean, where they were going to try and hunt down and disrupt British trade with the goal of, of starving Britain into um, submission and, and cutting off her supplies from primarily Northern America. Um, and, and to this end, they, the, the Dover Patrol became uh, the guardians of, of, of a barrage. Um, originally, um, it was lots and lots of drifters towing their nets across the English Channel trying to entangle U-boats. Um, the, 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 the Royal Navy all through the war had an obsession with nets. And I think it stems from the fact that so many of his officers were from the hunting, shooting and fishing set. And you can catch a <laughs> salmon with a net, so why can't you catch a U-boat? Um, so, so they'd trawl with these nets trying to catch U-boats, and then they started using um, fixed nets, which has to be ten had to be tended by trawlers and drifters. And eventually, mines and a mine barrage attached to a net, um, which again had to be tended and looked after. It has to be said that none of these activities were successful. 
and they sank very few U-boats with their mine barrage, and it occupied a great deal of, of time and attention, and was was a major focus for the, um, for, the for, for the admirals commanding the Dover Patrol. And yet, in your book, you help to explain why it is that they were trying such tactics, because as you point out, a lot of this weaponry was relatively new or brand new or was uh, through technology very different than its antecedents. So they were really feeling their way around in a very new type of warfare, whereas the traditional idea of naval warfare was surface ships uh, blasting at each other with cannon. Now you have this idea of uh, submarines, or more accurately, submersibles, that are able to travel underwater. You have these mines, which can be fixed or floating. And it's a new type of warfare that really engages a group of officers who have never entirely worked out how to respond. So there's a lot of, in your book, officers sort of thinking things through on the fly and coming up with radical new ways of doing things. And and, and sometimes they do seem to default to what they know best or the the closest analog to what they know. Uh, That's very true. Uh, Of course, the Navy was very much a rule-based system. Uh, and there were ways of doing things, and if you didn't do it that way, then you didn't do it at all. Um, but here you had a group of people who, who were learning the game and the rules at the same time, um, and some did it better than others. Intellectual flexibility was not necessarily a quality prized by the Royal Navy at the time, um, and um, it was much better if you did, did if you just did as you were told and accepted that the admiralty or admirals held all the knowledge that was necessary. But actually, um, through the war, this this began to loosen as a, as, a, as a doctrine, and people began to think for themselves. But people like Horace Hood, who was the first admiral um, commanding the patrol, uh, nothing in his previous experience would have prepared him for for actually what he had to do. I mean, he'd understand a bit about. Um, uh, convoying, and he'd understand a bit about um, protecting ships from other ships, but he knew nothing about anti-submarine warfare or anti-mine warfare, and he had to learn it uh, you know, on the job at the very start. And it wasn't simply a matter of learning it on the job. It was then crafting specialized weapons and technologies to respond to it. After all, at the start of the war, how did they detect submarines? Well, of course, they, they didn't. Um, and um, really, there was no um, satisfactory way of detecting a submarine until about 1917. The British actually established a major scientific workshop under uh, the Bragg um, father and son, uh, Nobel Prize winners, uh, up in Scotland um, to try and come up with ways of using sound to detect submarines. And eventually the problem was solved um, to a to a greater or lesser extent. But certainly for the first three years of the war, there really wasn't any way of spotting a submarine unless you happened to see a periscope. And indeed, one of the very first anti-submarine weapons provided um, to uh, men in trawlers was a hammer. They were supposed to sail up to the um, the periscope and smash the glass with a hammer. <laughs> did, did they ever actually uh, succeed in damaging a periscope that way? <laughs> I've not read one. I've not read of one, no. <laughs> But you also have, as you describe, the, uh, the, the, the role that it plays in terms of supporting the British Army. And as you describe, especially at the start of the war, that's critically important. They had the initial task, of course, of transporting the British Expeditionary Force to France to engage in what they initially thought was going to be a short conflict. But then as you have the invasion of Belgium, they become very quickly involved in 
is serving as a uh, adjunct to the ground campaign. That's correct. And, and they became effectively mobile artillery, floating artillery, um, supporting the, the, the French left wing, the Belgian left wing, um, uh, which was a job that they were entirely unfitted for. I mean, they, they didn't have the ships to do it. The, the Admiralty sent Hood old battleships and old cruisers. Um, uh, but their, their draft meant they couldn't really get close enough to shore to be effective. Um, and Hood had to improvise, so he, he found a pair of, of um, monitors, uh, river monitors, which had been built for the Brazilian Navy. Um, uh, could, could you explain and, briefly uh, they, the difference between a monitor and a battleship? Uh, a monitor is a small, shallow draft um, vessel uh, with uh, one or two heavy caliber guns on it uh, and designed to get close in shore uh, and, and bombard um, shore-based targets. Um, the Brazilians had built these for service on the Amazon, but then they couldn't pay for them. Um, so the, the Navy didn't really know what to do with them, so they sailed them down to Dover and anchored them up. Uh, and uh, in fact, sailing them down to Dover was fraught anyway, because there was the, the freeboard was so low that they very nearly sank um, off the west coast of England in the seaways. And Hood saw them there, and he thought, well, that's what I need. Um, so he got the Admiralty to give them to him and add to his force. He also found a collection of old gunboats, and I mean really old, dating back to the 1870s, um, uh, which he fitted out with, uh, they were being used as depot ships, and he fitted them out with guns or resurrected the guns that were already on them and sailed those out as well to act as bombardment platforms. Um, and uh, and uh, really, I think, um, was very clever in the way he invented his various weapon systems, but he really felt it was pointless he felt the army were, were lying to him, that, that um, uh, they weren't actually having much effect and that they were endangering his ships and his men but by moving them around the North Sea as if they were static artillery pieces and paying no regard, sorry, the, the, the southern North Sea, as if they were static artillery pieces um, rather than ships which could at any time encounter a U-boat or a set of mines and be sunk. Um, so uh, it, it was a very interesting um, part of the patrol's work, but it probably only really lasted for some six months. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the front solidified uh, and their ability to support the front was much reduced. Um, uh, and bigger monitors were then provided, uh, which were then used to try and bombard the U-boat pens uh, off the Flemish coast. But that's a part of the story we'll get to, I guess. It was, one of the things I thought was interesting was how the bombardment mission never really seems to work, and yet you describe it up through the end of the war. I mean, as late as 1918, they're using monitors and, and, and other vessels to, you know, basically test to see if the if the Germans are still uh, aggressively defending various coasts. And, and, yeah. and I and I thought that reflected perhaps to some degree the pressure that they were getting from uh, the, the the army to. Uh, continue to do something to help out? Because from an army perspective, it makes perfect sense. After all, there's water. So why can't the Navy sail those very expensive warships up and use some of those, you know, well-equipped, you know, uh, uh, artillery on them to uh, shell the enemy? And, and yet, as you point out, they had to conceive the things that the army never did. I mean, the army may have had to worry about counter-battery fire. They never had to worry about U-boats and mines floating up and sinking them while they're, while they're, while they're floating there. Absolutely. Uh, and, um, Part of this was a desire to, to show that the Navy was doing something. There was a lot of criticism in Britain um, that the Navy hadn't fought this new Trafalgar 
uh, and what was it doing exactly? You know, lots of ships, merchant ships being sunk uh, and, and, and the Navy uh, apparently not doing anything about it. Um, so that was part of the drive. Um, but also, of course, just the, the, the inadequacy of the equipment. Um, the, the, these were primarily, um, even if they weren't old vessels, they were usually old guns with worn gun barrels rescued from other ships. And, of course, ranging and, and sighting technology was not what it is today. And it was very difficult to land shells on, on um, land targets, which you couldn't see um, because of sand dunes or just because of distance. Um, so, I mean, it was Nelson who said that it's ridiculous for ships to attempt to engage shore batteries. Um, and didn't we prove that in the Dardanelles? Uh, but... Um, uh, nonetheless, the Navy had to be seen to be doing something and, and, and continues to do that. Uh, and when it came to shelling the U-boat pens on the Flemish coast, uh, that was very much driven by desperation because you know, by April 1917, the, the rate of sinking of merchant vessels in the, in the Atlantic was such that John Jellicoe, who was then first sea lord, admitted to the war cabinet that we were going to lose the war. Britain was going to lose the war unless he could do something about this. Uh, and, and so Bacon's bombardment of U-boat pens with his monitors was, was, a, was a, a response to that situation, that problem, based on what he had at hand. He didn't have the right weapons to do it. Um, today, they'd use bunker-busting bombs and, and uh, jets and all the rest of it. But then uh, airplanes carried minimal small bombs and big shells were considered to be the real answer. It also highlights another uh aspect of the Dover Patrol that makes it so interesting, which is not only did they have to invent responses, but they often were not, did not have first call on the best material. Uh, an excellent example being destroyers, who, which were critical to so much of what the Dover Patrol did. And yet when it came to priority, the priority was always the Grand Fleet. We always have to have Grand Fleet ready. And so they get the, uh, the, 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 the best ships. They, uh, they, they, they get the, uh, you know, they take first call when it comes to, uh, the latest, uh, you know, repairing the cannons and so forth because they always have to be at the ready. And yet it's the Dover Patrol that is actually going out there and engaging the enemy on a, uh, regular basis. That's absolutely true. Uh, and, and Britain was short of destroyers, but it wasn't as short as it made itself um, because it attached lots and lots of destroyers to the Grand Fleet because Jellicoe was uh, obsessed by the danger from torpedoes. Um, and so uh, a goodly proportion, up to 75% at some stages, of Britain's destroyer forces were attached to the Grand Fleet. They weren't doing very much. Um, so the Dover Patrol got the, it was very it was sucking hind tit, um, and um, it had the tribals. Um, it also had some nineteenth um, century vintage river class uh, and thirty knotter class uh, destroyers. But these were these were very inadequate ships with very light armament, um, going up against U-boats and up against German submarine, uh, German destroyers um, in the um, in the Channel itself. Uh, the German destroyers made several raids, some of which were successful, some of which weren't, uh, against our forces in the Channel, which, which the Dover Patrol had to fight off. So, yes, the, the, uh, it, it, it was, in, in every respect, for the Admiral's commanding, a very difficult conundrum. Uh, and uh, two of them were fired for their, for their um, work. Um, one of them made himself famous. Um, but actually, 
none of them were were um, able to confront the situation with the resources that they might have wanted. I wonder if you could speak a bit about the commanders, because you describe three commanders of uh, successive commanders of the Dover Patrol during the war. And one of the things that comes across in your book is that the three men could not have been more different from each other in terms of their command style, in terms of their uh, approach to resolving problems. And it really makes for an interesting study of command, the, the different styles of, 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 of leadership in the Royal Navy at that time. Uh, yes, um, it does. Uh, the first admiral in charge was, was um, Horace Hood, or the Honourable Horace Hood, who, who was known as the on to the lower deck. Um, he was the second youngest admiral in the Royal Navy. Um, highly intelligent. He was a 3 one he, he, he passed out with, um, for his lieutenant's exams, with first place in all three exams. Um, uh, intelligent to a fault. Uh, and he had to set up the Dover Patrol and sort of establish the game and the rules as the war unfolded. Um, he went out with his ships. He, he, he hopped from destroyer to destroyer. I think he flew his flag in something like 27 different vessels. It's some ridiculous number. Um, and um, he, he was very much out there in the forefront of the action. He was a highly energetic, slightly nervous person. He'd jump around and, and, and um, was very quick and quite small man. He was quite bird-like in his movements, apparently, um, but hugely intelligent. And he really did a very good job. Um, and he was fired by, by First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, in April 1915, because Churchill um, said, had been told or assumed, um, that the U-boats were getting through the Dover barrier and Hood wasn't doing his job. Um, actually, uh, that's not the case. Um, later evidence proved that, that actually the work that Hood uh, had done had caused the Germans to temporarily stop trying to get out into the Atlantic through that route. Um, some in the Navy said that Hood was fired because he was trying to rid himself of Churchill's brother-in-law. Um, uh, that might fall into the category of scurrilous rumour, um, but nonetheless, several people at the time wrote about it. Um, so Hood actually did a pretty good job. Um, he, he improvised, he organised, he led well. Um, his successor was Reginald Bacon, and Reginald Bacon was a very different kettle of fish. I mean, the one characteristic they shared in common was Bacon was very clever. Um, but Bacon was... Uh, old Navy. Uh, he'd actually left the Navy um, uh, and was called back uh, when war was declared. And he, in fact, left the Navy under a bit of a cloud, um, but he was a favourite of First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher's, uh, and it was Fisher that was instrumental in getting him called back to head up the Dover Patrol. Uh, Bacon was old Navy, so he believed uh, that um, he knew everything and he didn't need anybody's help, um, and he didn't believe he could ever be wrong, because after all, he was an admiral. Um, <laughs> uh, and he developed the net and the mine barrier to a point where he, he was pretty certain it was impervious to U-boats, except, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, uh, it wasn't. Um, and when the evidence was presented to him that showed that... Um, uh, that actually it wasn't working. He just said, "No, the evidence is wrong." Uh, could, could, uh, you br- could you briefly explain why it wasn't working? I mean, what was the complication that prevented? Uh, what- the, the, well, you had something like twenty-seven miles of nets and mines, um, uh, mines that didn't work very well, and nets that were constantly shearing or tearing had to be maintained. Um, Keeping them at the right depth was quite difficult, over 27 miles. So sometimes a submarine could cruise over the top at night, just go over the top of them. 
uh, during the day. They could find their way through the gaps that were constantly occurring. So it, 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 was, it was a bit like um, it, it was a barrier, but, but it was a barrier with lots of holes in it. Uh, and and a, a good U-boat captain could find a way through. Um, and that's what they did, but Bacon refused to believe that that was happening. Uh, and so eventually there was a conspiracy at the Admiralty between um, uh, Roger Keyes, Admiral Roger Keyes, and um, uh, Rosslyn Weems, who'd just become First Sea Lord. And, and in December 1917, um, uh, they, actually, I think on the 1st of January 1918, they fired um, uh, Bacon um, and um, Keyes himself took the job. Keyes had been angling for that job for some time. Um, all highly political when it's described in some detail in the book. Um, Keyes thought that he knew the answer. Um, but the problem for Keyes was, again, he was old Navy. Um, he believed that um, because he was an admiral, he was therefore um, very intelligent. The problem for Keyes was that he wasn't. Bacon and Hood, <laughs> at least, were intelligent men. Keyes was a bit dumb, um, uh, but very brave and very charismatic. Um, so he uh, then tried to put his mark on it, um, made changes to, to the net barrage and the drifters, and, and that led almost immediately um, to something that's called uh, the massacre of the drifters, when uh, quite a lot of these boats were attacked by um, German destroyers and sunk. And you have to remember these drifters were not, these drifters and trawlers were not manned by Royal Navy personnel. They manned the fishermen who'd used to fish off them. Um, so they, they might have been aggressive in the pub after a night on the beer, but they weren't trained aggressors. They weren't trained to fight back. Uh, and they thought that the, the Navy had let them down. Um, uh, they, they certainly didn't have the equipment to stand up against destroyers, which were... They, they you know, hadn't. You know, if they were armed at all, they had little three-pounder guns, which were hardly better than pop guns. Um, so... Um, Keyes didn't cover himself with glory either, uh, although, as I describe at the end of the book, um, Keyes did um, institute the Zeebrugger and Ostend raids, which were yet another attempt to try and stop the U-boats coming out of their bases. Um, raids that uh, you can't really say were planned, because they weren't, um, but raids that were nonetheless conducted with great, great bravery, um, but with virtually no um, satisfactory impact. Uh, and many people considered that Keyes had thrown away brave men in a rather futile gesture. Um, that was in April 1918. In April 19, um, that was when Douglas Haig had issued his famous uh, backs to the wall order, um, when the Germans were making their last attempt to, to break through the Allied lines. And things looked pretty black. So, so the press uh, and the government took Keyes' extremely brave but fairly foolhardy uh, operations and really puffed them up uh, to to give the British public something to cheer about. Um, and for many many years, the accepted wisdom was that was a successful operation. One of the things that I attempt to show in the book um, is that it wasn't, and it was actually a waste of brave men's lives. You've been talking about these men in terms of some of their capacities. I was wondering if you could get into a bit more detail because, as you describe in the book, there not just Royal Navy officers and seamen, but they're men from oftentimes very different backgrounds, uh, some professional mariners, uh, some volunteers for whom it's a part-time job. And yet 
they all seem to come together and oftentimes serve uh, together in, in the same boats. Who were these men and, and what brought them to the Dover Patrol? Well, increasingly, the Dover Patrol was an amateur operation. Um, the professional Navy, the, the pre-war Navy, um, was um, primarily in the Grand Fleet, um, uh, Scarpa, uh, Scarpa Flow. Um, and increasingly, the ships were manned and, uh, and commanded by people who were not regular Royal Navy uh, uh, mariners. Um, so they would be in, in roughly order of um, number, um, RNR, Royal Naval Reserve. These were professional mariners, but mariners who'd um, served in, in the civilian um, trade. So they might be um, skippers of cargo boats, they might be officers on liners, they might be um, men who served in the stokeholds or the engine rooms of, of, of um, merchant ships. Um, together with all the fishermen, all the fishermen who, who were taken, the trawlers and the drifters were just taken up by the Admiralty with their crews and then stiffened with um, one or two um, more trained naval people. Uh, and they were all inducted into the RNR as well. So the Royal Naval Reserve um, became the majority of the men who served in the Dover Patrol. Um, there was then the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. Um, and the best way I can describe this uh, is, is this was like Boy Scouts with alcohol. Um, <laughs> so, so before the war, there were lots of little groupings of people who liked the sea. They might be amateur sailors. They might just be clerks or, or warehouse workers or, or anybody who liked the sea um, who got together over weekend or during the week and did a bit of um, sailing stuff, or talked about the Navy a bit, um, and, and then went off to the, to the local hostelry. Um, uh, these increasingly were, were now um, coming into the Navy and coming in, um, taking command positions. They were quite often educated people. So we talk about um, all the, um, the trawlers and drifters that served. Generally, the, the radio operator on these ships would be RN, RNVR. Um, the command of uh, the smaller boats, um, things like the motor launches or the coastal motor boats, which, uh, both of which were small vessels which uh, were called into existence to, to help hunt for U-boats um, or to help attack uh, shallow draft targets. Um, they were commanded by RNVR um, people. Um, and then you had um, the... the um, uh, the MMR, the Merchant Marine Reserve, and these were really um, people, particularly people from the, the stokeholds and the engine rooms of large passenger or cargo vessels who, who were um, drafted in to provide um, heavy work in the engine rooms and the, of, of some of these vessels. So it was very much a volunteer uh, operation. And you have to remember, um, when America joined the war, it introduced conscription immediately. Conscription was not introduced in Britain until m about March 1916. Um, uh, and the Navy generally didn't benefit from, from conscription. Most of the people who came into the Navy were volunteers. So you had lots of merchant seamen, lots of fishermen, lots of yachties, um, lots of people who just liked the romance of the sea coming into the Navy and ending up uh, running the Dover Patrol. And yet, as you describe in your book, there wasn't exactly a whole lot of romance when it came to their 
responsibilities and their life aboard these ships. As you described, the, the nature of these ships meant that service was oftentimes very uh, unpleasant, uncomfortable. And this is even before we talk about the uh, issue of combat and just the daily life on these ships was uh, often was, was, could be very trying and, 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 and uh, very draining. I mean, it was pretty, pretty nasty. Um, I think the word that could be used to describe life in the Dover Patrol was wet. Um, <laughs> b- b- because, you know, it didn't matter what boat you were on, uh, what vessel you were on, um, you were going to get wet. Um, they were not um, vessels that, that had any sort of uh, luxury about them. If you were serving on a battleship uh, at Scupper Flow, then it was nice and dry uh, and very comfortable, and you had a nice bunk or hammock or bed or whatever. Um, but uh, in these ships, you really just had to put up with some pretty um, poor conditions. I and mean, it, it was virtually impossible to eat to start with, um, because in any sort of seaway, all of these boats um, just uh, darted about in the sea. They were, they were all very lively vessels. Um, and so you couldn't really eat. Um, you couldn't really get any sleep. You were always wet. Um, uh, and down below decks, um, because of all the motion, there was usually a lot of vomit and rubbish slopping around in the scuppers. Um, it was just a very unpleasant lifestyle. And, and you're quite right, the romance uh, uh, of the um, uh, the original idea of, oh, let's go to sea, that would be wonderful, we'll fight an ice cream war in the Navy, it, it wasn't really like that at all. And yet, as you describe, the men of the patrol really took a lot of pride in their action. You described this uh, one anecdote where this uh, cook, officer's cook, comes on board uh, one of these small vessels, and he uh, you know, checks in with the coxswain, and then he goes and, and sees an officer, and the officer uh, interrogates him as to where his action position is, and the cook says, uh, I don't know where it is, and the officer says, you've been on board this ship for, for five minutes, you need to know where your action station is, because we could go into action at, you know, at any moment. And, and there was, it, what I took from that was the sense that they took great pride in the fact that they were actually engaging the enemy, and, and it wasn't just this theoretical notion that might happen at some distant day in some sort of envisioned battle that never actually took place. I think you're right. Um, there, there seemed to me to be a lot of pride in the fact that they were serving the Dover Patrol and they were doing real work uh, 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 and they would um, they'd take the Michael out of the battleship swinging at anchor, doing nothing very much. Um, I think it's uh, I mean, you see it in sports teams sometimes and you certainly see it in industries where the work is dirty and tough like mining. But there's a real uh, sense of pride in doing a very difficult job and doing it well. Uh, uh, and that was certainly true of the Dover Patrol. And the, the, the interesting thing about the story you've just related is that that cook, um, who's an officer's cook, um, he actually did um, win a medal for bravery and because he had to deal with a situation when uh, his destroyer's magazine caught fire uh, and he, he put it out. I wonder if... You should describe in the book, apart from the 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 uh, Zio raid in, in April of 1918, there were not a lot of major battles that are often popularly remembered. Instead, you're talking about a lot of smaller engagements that uh, were f- quite commonplace throughout the course of the war. I was wondering if there was a particular battle or mission that, as you were researching and writing this, you found to be especially illustrative of the patrol in some way. Um, my, my favourite 
um, is what's technically known as the Second Battle of the Dover Strait. Um, and I like it because it's Nelsonian. Um, it suddenly harks back to a, to a previous time. Um, and the 100th anniversary of it has, in fact, just passed. It was the 20th of April, um, 1917. And 12 tor- German torpedo boats set out from Zeebrugge to attack the net barrage and, and the drifters. Um, but for a variety of reasons, including minefields, they, they couldn't get there. So instead, they attempted a bombardment of Dover and Calais, six ships to each bombardment. Um, and it's midnight. It's, it's 01.45 in the morning. Um, it's dark. It's really dark. Um, um, two Royal Navy ships, Swift and Brook, um, are um, on patrol off Dover. Uh, and they can't really see a thing. Um, and the Brook uh, is commanded by a man called Teddy Evans, um, or to be given his full title, Edward Ratcliffe Garth Russell Evans. Um, and he was a famous polar explorer. He'd been to the, the South Pole with Scott. Uh, and unlike the rest of the party, he didn't die because he became seriously ill with scurvy uh, and had to abort the, the walk to the pole and go back. Um, and he always, um, when he sailed, he had a stuffed penguin mascot strapped to the mast of his vessel, which I always think is quite amusing. Um, so he um, and Swift, Brooke and Swift, are, are on patrol, and suddenly, out of the night, there are six ships. Oh, who's are they? Um, one of the constant themes through the, the Dover Patrol is recognition signals just didn't work. Um, uh, and um, whilst the, the captains of the Royal Navy ships are sort of working out what to do, uh, the six ships open fire on them. Um, so Swift returns fire and torpedoes an enemy vessel, but, but she's hit herself and loses power. Evans on Brook um, orders full speed, he goes harder port, opens fire and sees a ship in front of him and determines to ram. Um, and at 27 knots, his badly wounded helmsman, helmsman steers the brook into the side of the German ship. Um, and he goes straight through it, uh, embedded into it. Um, so, of course, the two ships are now locked together, and, and the German orders a carronade of the, of the British decks, and Evans orders a cannonade across the German decks. Men are mown down on both sides. There were 18 men working Brooks forward guns, and only five were left standing. Um, and now the Germans try to board the Brook, um, and a battle takes place on um, people using cutlasses, people using swords, bayonets, uh, bare hands, pistols, um, to the cry of repel borders. Uh, it's, it's just like something out of Hornblower, isn't it? Um, <laughs> And um, eventually, Brooks men sweep the Germans off the deck um, um, and win the day. And, and as, a, as, as is always necessary in these things, not only is there an officer hero in, in, in Evans, there's also a, um, uh, a junior hero, um, a young midshipman um, who himself is RNR. So, you know, he's a, he was actually uh, um, a trainee with a merchant ship and, and became a midshipman on a Navy ship. His name was Giles, and he became a hero because he'd, he'd defended the forward gun and fought off with a pistol, um, the Germans coming towards him. So I, I find that story, I mean, clearly, if he were there, it was probably very nasty indeed. It's very <laughs> easy to look at it from a hundred years' distance. But I just find it typical of the spirit of these people. Right now. Um, 
if you want to have a fight, you know, come on, let's have a fight. We'll do it on the deck. We'll get we'll get cutlasses and knives, and we'll have a proper fight. <laughs> it with stories like that, and and, and the, the 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 role that the Dover Patrol plays, it really does seem a, a, a great shame that it isn't more often covered that that the focus is so much upon what doesn't happen rather than all these activities which really were a critical component of of the first world war yes and i think it's because um after the war the 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 navy reverted to its fixation with big ships um they still believed it was very difficult to get rid of this belief system that said, you know, it, it's it's the battle fleet that's going to win the wars and it's the big cruisers that are going to keep the trade lanes free. And that's what we need to focus on. And so these little stories get forgotten. But actually, I'm, I seem to be cornering the market in writing about um, some of these smaller, lesser known naval campaigns. But they were really important and at the risk of repeating myself. They were important because this was how you exercise command of the sea. Germany was starved out, um, and uh, again, not enough historians pay attention to the fact that one of the reasons why the Germans eventually asked for an armistice was, at home, um, people were dying of starvation, um, and the German soldiers began to say to themselves, what the hell are we fighting for? Uh, my sister, my wife, my brother, my uncle back home is dying. Uh, why are we doing this? And that was part of the breaking of their morale. And that was because the Royal Navy exercised control of the sea. And it exercised control and command of the sea, not through the big ships, although the fleet in being, of course, has a, has a, has a benefit because the threat was always there that if the Germans came out to try and break the blockade, then the, the British Grand Fleet would come out and destroy them. But it was actually these individual small ship actions which really gave Britain command of the sea. And then you have the role of the patrol itself, which had this prosaic effect of forcing the German, so many of the German U-boats to go the long way around, which cut down on their time. So not only did the Dover patrol play a role in the blockade, which eventually broke the Germany's ability to continue the war, but it also helped to give Britain just that little bit extra of a lifeline so that they never faced such dire straits. Uh, that's correct. Um... And um, the detour was quite significant. It took away something like a quarter of the, uh, to a third of the, of the U-boat's operating margin. Um, uh, they didn't always have to detour. You know, the, the, as I say, the barrier was porous. It was only from time to time that they detoured. But yes, it certainly had an impact. Um, uh, and um, it, driving the U-boats into the Atlantic easier to intercept because we, we had quite a lot of vessels out in the Atlantic trying to protect our trade. And once we'd worked out that convoy was the right answer, um, uh, it became easier to, to um, prevent the U-boats um, attacking our trade and, um, and provide the proper defense. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm working on uh, another um, lesser-known action, uh, which is a book which we published in, in the UK in January of 2018 and in America probably around April, May. Uh, it's called Bailey's War, and it's about the battle for the Western approaches in the First World War. Um, uh, a, lot of, a lot is written about the battle for the Western approaches in the Second World War, um, but in the First War, uh, we had a, a real problem protecting trade coming in from America and based in Queenstown in Ireland, um, 
Britain's naval forces fought a, a long and hard battle to, to protect trade and counter U-boats, um, eventually, of course, joined by the American Navy. The American Navy arrived in Queenstown on the 4th of May, um, 1917, um, and they fought under the command of, of the Royal Navy's uh, Admiral Lewis Bailey. Um, and uh, that's where America sunk its first uh, U-boat. Um, uh, that's where... Um, America, the American Navy suffered its worst losses of the war. Um, so it was, it was very much a joint effort. Um, and I don't think very many people uh, know about it. So hopefully this will um, receive the position of fame that it should have. Well, it sounds like an excellent book. I look forward to reading it. Uh, Steve Dunn, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. I've enjoyed it.